This evening we're going to consider being more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Our passage is Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through to the end of the chapter, verse 39. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through to 30, we need to look what the Apostle Paul had already said before we come to today's passage. It follows on from what he's already said. In fact, if you really wanted to um, get the context, you probably have to start from chapter 1 and verse 1. But we'll just start, for context's sake, we'll have a look at verses 28 through to 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Therefore, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour from sin, all things work together for good. Remember the emphasis is all things, those all things aren't necessarily very nice at the time, but they work together for good. And in verse 29 and 30, we've, we have we have that lovely chain of salvation with those five golden links. The first link, the foreknowledge of God, which not only speaks of God knowing you in eternity, it was pointed out God knows all things, everything. There's nothing hidden from God. But if God foreknows you, that means that as well as knowing you in eternity, there's that everlasting love for you. Then there's the predestination of God, the second link, that he, having loved you with an everlasting love, determined your destiny. In eternity, that was. That in the fullness of time, you would be conformed to the image of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in God's perfect time, he called you with a holy, effectual and irresistible call, to his son as a repentant sinner. The fourth link, you were saved from your sins and justified through faith in Jesus. Last of all, when Jesus comes again, your body will most certainly be made like unto his glorious body. That's the five golden links of the chain of salvation in verses 29 and 30. When you take time out to think about those glorious truths, you'll understand why in verse 31, if you look at that now, it is written, If God be for us, who can be against us? 
That word if guards against presuming that God must surely be for you, whoever you are, because God is love. After all, the jihadi who goes on a suicide mission no doubt vainly imagines that God is with him and I dare say that his God, the devil, is with him or for him. But the one true God who is the maker of heaven and earth most certainly is not with him. However, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a born-again Christian, having been crucified with Jesus, you have every reason to look at verse 31 and with your heart filled with gratitude, you can thank God now and forevermore that he really is for you if you belong to Jesus. And to answer the question, who can be against us in verse 31? If you are someone who is saved and justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you walk the talk, then of course no one is against you, are they? No one at all. Everybody loves you. If not only do you trust in Jesus, but you are known as someone who trusts in Jesus and you live as with God's enabling, you live biblically and you seek to live for the glory of God. Not quite the case, is it? The fact of the matter is that if you walk the talk, there will inevitably be those who will be against you. That's for sure. However, it matters not who or how many they may be when you consider the five golden links of salvation and you know with an absolutely certain knowledge that the only one of those links that is left to be fulfilled is the fifth one, the last one, the glorification of your body when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. It doesn't. It really doesn't matter who is against you. So in that sense, if God be for us, who can be against us? And it really is a case of, I don't know and I don't really care because I belong to Jesus. It matters not. Verse 32 through to verse 39 give a far more complete answer to the question raised in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? Let's, I wonder if we can have that speaker on just in case John's going next door. The, 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 that one, the right one. Yep, I can hear it next door. Okay, yeah, let's have a look at verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There can be no greater proof that the Christian is eternally secure than the fact that God spared not his only begotten son, but laid upon him the iniquity of those whom he did foreknow. Link one there in the golden chain. God gave his only begotten son. God laid upon his only begotten son your iniquity, if you're a Christian. 
What more evidence do you need that God is for you when you think about that? Without in any way excusing those people who laid their wicked hands upon the incarnate Son of God, they crucified him and they put him to death on the cross. The fact of the matter is that the Lord Jesus Christ was given up, delivered in accordance with God's predetermined counsel, his eternal decree, his foreknowledge. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was done in accordance with God's will. When Paul asked the question, how shall he, that is God, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I trust, dear Christian, that you can see that the answer to that question is that since God has delivered up his son and given the greatest gift that he can, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then nothing will be withheld from us, from you as a Christian. Nothing will be withheld from you. Why? Because God has already laid your iniquities on his son. God is the giver of every good gift. He is the giver of every perfect gift. Having given his son, he forgives sin. He gives everlasting life. He gives the Holy Spirit who indwells all who are trusting in Jesus. He gives a heavenly inheritance and no doubt he gives much more. In fact, when you think of what God has given you, he's given you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there we have it in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I trust you can see that if you are with someone, it's someone for whom God gave his only begotten son. God will not withhold anything from you for your good, for his glory. Let's have a look at verses 33 and 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We need to be clear what that means, the elect. We should all be clear by now. We've been looking at that quite frequently. The elect of God. Who are the elect of God? Those whom God has chosen unto salvation and everlasting life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen in eternity. In other words, it is, it is to be, it is to God's elect, to God's elect that the golden chain of salvation applies. The elect of God, no one else. Those whom he foreknew and loved with an everlasting love, they are the elect of God. Concerning election, Spurgeon said, 
there seems to be a deep-seated prejudice in the human mind against this doctrine. And although most other doctrines will be received by professing Christians, some with caution, others with pleasure, yet this one, the, the doctrine of election, seems to be most frequently disregarded and discarded. It seems that a lot of people, including Christians, consider election to be unfair. It's not fair that God should choose some for salvation and not others. It needs to be realised that without election there would not be one single Christian in the world. There would not be one um, forgiven soul in heaven if it were not for the fact that God elects people. He, those whom he foreknew, he did predestinate the elect of God. Left to their own devices, nobody in this world would ever become a Christian. See it in Romans, in this same chapter, chapter 8, uh, the natural man, yeah, the, the carnal mind, verse 7 there, in chapter 8. The carnal mind is enmity against God. That means it's hostile towards God. All unregenerate people are, by sinful nature, hostile towards God. So we thank God that he does choose some. And if you're a Christian, thank God now and forevermore that although you're no better than anyone else, you thank God that he chose you. To answer the question that Paul raised in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The answer is, it is God that justifieth. We can see an example of that in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, where Satan accused the high priest Joshua only to be rebuked by God, who justifies yeah, I'm going to turn to Zechariah chapter 3, second to last book in the Old Testament. Joshua, sorry, Zechariah chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. In other words, to accuse him before God. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that have chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? We read on there. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment, a change of clothes. 
Satan, who was opposing and accusing Joshua, was immediately rebuked and silenced by God. And so it is with you, dear Christian, though Satan and even your own deceitful heart may well accuse you. You are nevertheless a brand plucked out of the fire by the grace of God who has justified you and who has declared you righteous in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You too have been clothed with a change of raiment. You stand before God, your heavenly father, clothed in garments of salvation and in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan can accuse you, your own heart can accuse you, but it is God who justifies you. Furthermore, that same Jesus, having paid your debt of sin in full, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he ever lives to make intercession for you. Can you imagine that? God in heaven, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated seated at his right hand. Jesus, who laid down his life for you, Jesus, who in John chapter 17, verse 24, says to his father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am to behold my glory. That same Jesus, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for you. When you think about that, who can accuse you when it is God? who justifies you, and the Son of God, who intercedes for you in heaven. Let's have a look at verse 35, turning back to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. The first thing to notice there is that Paul didn't even bother to ask who shall separate us from our love of Christ. It's not about our love of Christ. And that is because all the benefits that we're considering are due to God's love for his elect. Not our love for God, but God's love for us, his elect. It is a love that was manifested at the cross. As it is written, God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And having himself suffered at the cross, as he bare away your sins, dear Christian, The love of the Son of God for you is such that your sufferings are his sufferings. He has suffered for you on the cross and now your sufferings are his sufferings. For example, before Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, before he became a Christian, he was a Pharisee, a religious Jew, and his name was Saul. And he went around rounding Christians up, imprisoning them. One day as he was heading towards Damascus to round up Christians, 
the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a bright light. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You've got to realise that Saul was persecuting the church. He was wasting the church. He even stood giving his approval when a Christian man was stoned to death, a man by the name of Stephen. Even so, Jesus, when he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Jesus, who was now ascended to heavenly glory, having paid the price for sin. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in judgment, he will say to all who have trusted in him for salvation and consequently these people will have demonstrated the genuineness of their faith in Jesus in their acts of brotherly love and compassion for other Christians because that's what Christians do. Genuine Christians love and show compassion for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus will say to them, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these brethren, brethren of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So whatever you do for a suffering Christian, a Christian who is some in some way afflicted, you do it for Jesus. And you do this without even thinking about it, really. Why? Because you're a new creature in Christ. And basically, that's what you do as a Christian. It's it's natural to you to want to help brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brethren, you do for me. Paul then goes on to list seven circumstances that might separate us from the love of Christ, if it were possible. The seven circumstances are tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril and sword. If you have verse 28 indelibly stamped in your mind, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, then I trust you realise and are absolutely certain of the fact that far from separating us from the love of Christ, God uses those seven afflictions to draw us even closer to his Son. If you understand verse 28, you'll see that list of seven afflictions, terrible afflictions there, in... Verse 35, they're for your good. They draw you closer to Jesus. 
Paul was not speaking theoretically like some armchair theologian studying for a doctor of divinity. He knew what he was talking about from his own experience. He had himself suffered terribly as a Christian. His testimony was as follows. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Even the last affliction on the list in verse 35 here, the sword, may well have been the experience of Paul. Tradition has it that Paul was beheaded in Rome. The ultimate example of suffering is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Upon that cross, Jesus was wounded for the transgressions of all the elect of God, and he was bruised for their iniquity. Let's have a look at verse 36. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In verse 36, Paul was quoting from Psalm 44 in the Old Testament. And that psalm refers to Israel being afflicted by their enemies. They were slaughtered like (coughs) sheep slaughtered. That is how it was with Israel of of old, slaughtered by their enemies. Also that is how it was with the early church in the Apostle Paul's time, the church being slaughtered like sheep. And that is the present day experience for many Christians in various parts of the world, being slaughtered like sheep. Well have a look at verse 37. Nay, in all these things, including being slaughtered like sheep, including the sword, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In verse 35, Paul listed those seven afflictions that are the the portion for Christians, with the seventh one being the sword. In other words, martyrdom. To emphasise all of that, in the next verse he talked about being accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The sword, sheep to the slaughter, you begin to wonder what's coming next. And you might think that Paul was somewhat obsessed with suffering and, and death, martyrdom for Christ's sake. Unless you are able to see that what he was in fact doing was emphasising that we are more than conquerors, 
even and especially in those afflictions, including death. More than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror in death? A conqueror is someone who defeats the enemy as a consequence of suffering the reproach of Christ and perhaps even dying for Christ's sake. The Christian isn't just a conqueror who defeats the enemy, he is more than a conqueror. Not only does he defeat the enemy, but the enemy becomes a means of drawing him even closer to the God of his salvation. And if that Christian is martyred, then of course he enters into the presence of Jesus, which is far better. Can you see why he doesn't just say we are conquerors? We are more than conquerors if we belong to Christ. It doesn't matter what this world throws at you or Satan or your your own heart, whatever. More than conquerors. Again, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. All things, even that list of seven afflictions. Finally, in verses 38 and 39, Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I'm reading that, I I mean, I've known these verses for years. I've loved those verses. But I still pray, as I read them, that God would impress the truth of those verses in my heart more and more each time I read them. I, I would guess that most of us know those verses, but I wonder how much we appreciate what is being said in those verses. Paul reaches the wonderfully positive conclusion of the matter that nothing, nothing in all creation is able to separate the Christian from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus his Lord. Understand that and you will understand that if you are the elect of God, if you can read through, um, if you can look at verse 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. If that's you, and then if you can read the next two verses uh, and look at that golden chain with the five links of salvation, foreknowledge, predestination, being called and being justified, being glorified, if you say, well, that's me. And then you carry on reading about nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And if you really get a handle on that, and you you you, you pray that God would impress that truth in your mind and in your heart, then you will realise that if you are a Christian, you really are safe and secure now 
and forevermore. If you reach the conclusion of this and you, you, you still say, well, you know, I can lose the whole lot, I can blow it and end up in hell. You haven't understood the passage. You really haven't understood the passage. To bring all that we have considered together, I'll finish with what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27 through to 29. My sheep hear my voice, my sheep, the elect of God, who have been called and who follow Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. Who gives eternal life? Jesus. Who's Jesus? God, the Son of God. He gives eternal life. And they shall never perish. Never means never. Don't start putting your own spin on that. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I, you know, I've had someone say to me before, no man can pluck me out of God's hand, but I can step out of it. How wrong that is. And you've completely missed the first part of what I said there, or what Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. Eternal life means forevermore. I'll just, I'll end by saying, may each one of us here read these lovely verses from verse 28 through to the end of that chapter and at the end of it all, thank God. Thank God that all things work together for good to them that love God, to you who are trusting in Christ Jesus. But what if you're not? What if you're not trusting in Jesus? These verses mean absolutely nothing to you. Nothing whatsoever. You've got nothing to look forward to. Only judgment, damnation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Turn from your sin. Receive Jesus as your saviour. And may God bless you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Amen.